Fellow knowledge seekers, I hope you've had a chance to check out the Waterline podcast on iTunes and your Android app. And if you checked it out, please give it a good rating. It's a wonderful podcast. Water is one of the biggest driving forces of life on Earth. It's been incredibly influential in human history from the time we were hunter-gatherers looking for fresh sources of water to the uh, uh, agricultural revolution and building bigger and bigger cities eventually having plumbing uh, the way that it changed sanitation uh, irrigation and what is the what's the future of water are we going to have enough of this stuff how can we make more clean fresh water i just listened to a very interesting episode alchemy turning milk into water sustainable water management this episode is all about this very candid conversation about water coffee industrial practices sustainable value chain and social responsibilities with uh this man carlos uh galli who Uh, whose job it is to make sure that the biggest food and beverage company in the world is leading a healthy and sustainable lifestyle. Incredibly important stuff. You guys are into science. You guys are into learning, caring about the world, caring about our future. This podcast is for you. Check out the Waterline podcast on iTunes and your Android app. Well, we had a little change of plans this week. We have a two-part episode, and it's two parts with two different guests explaining two different parts of it. Uh, I didn't really know this reaching out to people. It's just the way it worked out, and I think it's it's going to be interesting and uh, fun, new little take on things. It will also be giving you guys an opportunity to be a little more involved and ask questions after you hear this this first one, there's a lot of stuff kind of going on in academia right now with with uh, uh, how how politically correct should things be in a in a college environment, and we'll get into that. Uh, this is so. This is kind of the first. This is a 101 introduction on this episode, and then we will have a uh, kind of 102. We'll have a more in-depth explanation of what's going on with your uh, potential questions after in in a few weeks so i wanted to release this so that the next guest can hear this one and be prepared and then we can take it a little further so uh i like this idea because it will allow us to explore ideas a little more in depth but uh just had to change the order around on some things so those of you that were looking forward to uh hearing Catherine mclean of of uh um psilocybin research and john um doing psilocybin research at johns hopkins uh that will be next week now instead uh wonderful episode so make sure and tune in for that and a quick shout out to my pals at laughable don't forget the laughable app is also for all of your non-comedy podcast needs as well so even if you're one of the listeners that you're listening to this as a science podcast which is often how i bill it uh and and you don't really listen to comedy podcasts laughable is still a wonderful resource for you the non-comedy podcast listener and even more so if you're a comedy podcast listener and don't forget to subscribe to me so you can hear me on other podcasts as well and with that enjoy today's show are we yes 
Where are we? Here. Why are we here? Not entirely clear. We are misfits thrust into existence by random chance with no hints at all as to how we're supposed to make sense of it all. It's immensely bizarre. Here we are. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Here We Are podcast. Today, I have Professor of Philosophy at Portland State University. He is also the author of A Manual for Creating Atheists and the Atheist app. Peter Bergosian is joining me today. Peter, I read your book. Uh, yeah. I, I liked it. I'm uh, I'm all for. I, I haven't gone door to door yet trying to uh, find atheists. It seems a little odd to to go door to door, telling people to ignore other door to door. People people do use the book in various ways. <laughs> so and, what is the app? I haven't. Uh, so the app is Atheos A T H E O S, and it was done in conjunction with the Richard Dawkins Foundation, and it's ba- basically teaches people how to have civil conversations about a wide range of faith based mystical topics, religious topics, and so it's basically questions thousands and thousands of questions come up and you have to choose between answers and it tells you why those answers are right or wrong so how i how i can talk to my midwestern family about my atheism without it ruining or how uh, you can people challenge your beliefs there's a whole section on curveballs hindus people who believe in karma you name it it's an evidence-based approach to have more effective conversations that's wonderful. Um, and speaking of mm. having uh, having kind of reasonable uh, conversations, about, you you are the first guest that I've had that has uh, you've promised me controversy uh, today. Yeah, you, you, you've promised me yeah. a complicated um, idea. Uh, I believe uh, uh, you were going to construct the scaffolding of right. an edifice right of a, a, a is that what and, i said i okay and and uh and this is going to be a controversial episode so i'm super excited about that you seem to think that i'm gonna get in trouble for this i don't think i i, don't I think, think you're gonna catch major flack from what i'm all about right to say. all right yeah. wonderful so, well wonderful I'm, that's I, good that's one response I'm, to I'm it a, that's really I'm a good comedian right. it's pretty hard for me to get in trouble for anything so, so i'll i'll start I, by saying that Please challenge that. I'm I'm going to give a first order overview of something, and I hope to do a good job on this because I think that your listeners will be fascinated by this. And hopefully, I'll be able to continue this conversation yes. with, with uh, potentially other guests that you're lining right. up for me. So the it's so exciting. my goal is to give an overview Great. of of what I'll call a new religion of intersection bum, bum, bum. <laughs> can i add right. sound effects you can add any sound effects you want that's good all right uh it's more like a, a conspiracy cult than a religion it's it's like the state religion under mao pol pot in in a theological sense so i'm going to unpack this at a very rudimentary level and then dr james Lindsay is gonna flesh in the details so today's have the overview i have oh, okay. i have that's, asked him and i've asked you so we're good to go right. okay good. but for today i will say that I know that this will be scrutinized. Everything I'm going to say is going to be scrutinized, but it's an overview. And that's my goal today is to convey that. So I want to use our point of entry as Game of Thrones. Oh, I love Game of okay, Thrones. Okay, well, this is everyone fantastic. Loves Game of Thrones. Not everyone. <clears throat> if you, if but you don't, you're dead to me. People who haven't seen it don't. Well, they should. Don't, uh, they should. Yeah, exactly. So in Game of Thrones, there's 
the old gods and there are the new gods. Right. Okay. The reason there are the new gods is because people stopped believing in the old gods. If any point, if I say anything that's unclear, let me know, pause me, and we're going to go back. Also, if you offend me, I'm going to punch you right Uh-oh. in the face. I'm in big trouble. <laughs> as, as even though I know that you uh, do jiu No, I'm terrible at jiu-jitsu. It's just a regularly. It's a, uh, the goal is to prevent me from having a heart attack. Okay, so here's so here's the idea. So I'm going to talk about intersectionality, which is in by analog the new religion, and. Alan Dershowitz called it the phoniest academic doctrine I have encountered in 53 years. I'm, I'm going to go well beyond that. And let's start. Why don't we start with the definition? I mean, I think that I think that I'm not sure that this will be some of the stuff. I think that our listeners, my listeners will be already kind of a little bit prepared for. There's a, there's been a lot of I, I have a lot of evolutionary and uh, psychology and biologists on. There's a lot of this going around through academia What's right the, now the intersectionality yeah yeah it's dominant it's the dominant right. discourse right and now there, and there's a lot of a lot of people talking about it a lot of people on different sides of it a lot of people complaining about it and and uh there's a lot of con- controversy around it so i think that i think we're in pretty Good. safe I think waters that's, that's fantastic about this. yeah part of the problem is that many people who ascribe to this theory it's not exactly a theory but this belief that they don't understand that it's a religion yet so why don't we start with the definition and then we can sure talk about we can compare it to religion how it's like religion how it's not like religion and and if there are any quote-unquote redemptive aspects from it i would borrow from religious terminology from the sure. Abraham, abrahamic traditions i mean i do feel like in in uh I, th- I feel like there's often a little bit of truth in everything <clears throat> that bubbles up i don't know well yeah the underlying core commitments of intersectionality, we all share these impulses to help the vulnerable, the right. weak, the the most. So, so let's talk about what that is. It's basically the theory that there are from Kimberly Crenshaw in the late eighties that there's an overlap of various social identities. For example, you know, sexual orientation or race or gender, and they don't exist as separate or isolated from each other. So they're complex, interwoven relationships that are essential to understanding the human condition. I'm using their words. Mm-hmm. Um, and ge- uh, in the human condition in general and discrimination and oppression in particular. So that's the point of entry into the conversation. Mm-hmm. All right. We cool so far? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So let's talk about how... <laughs> Oppression became a virtue. <laughs> what if you go ahead? Thirty seconds into explaining this, I just threw water in your face and ran out of here. <laughs> well, I guess I'd clean up the water and then be like, "What a dick!" <laughs> I'd be a little well, mystified well, by that, but no, I mean, I, I'm just, I'm just, I, I'm no, but not, that, uh, yeah, I, that is interesting. Totally, okay, but if I, you, okay, but in all seriousness, so, though, if so you, far, I if feel you very did that, at ease with all of these ideas. Okay, good, good. So if you, if you did that, I would tell you this is exactly what I would think, and I'm being very sincere. If you did that, I would think you are a person who subscribes to this ideology mm-hmm. because they don't have built into this ideology. There is in, in Christianity, you have first Peter three fifteen, the idea that you have to give a defense of your faith. Right. And that one passage in the Bible has been responsible for an unbelievably sophisticated apologetic. Apologetic is defense of the faith. Intersectionalists and third wave intersectional feminists, they don't have that. 
So as John Stuart Mill says, if you only know your side of the argument, you don't even know that. So they construe words as violence. So if you were to throw water in my face, that would make perfect sense to me that you're right. a third wave intersectional feminist because you don't want to hear the other side of the issue. You don't want to hear conflict. Right. Now, if somebody is listening to this and you are a third wave intersectional feminist, let me say this to you. How is it that I know that you haven't read the work of the one of the world's preeminent female philosophers? And I say female philosophers or woman philosophers for a very specific reason her critique of Judith Butler. Because again, built into this ideology, and people can Google that and pull it up for free, sure. is they don't look at other sides of the car. They don't, they don't, they're specifically taught. It's professors in these disciplines look at this as an ideology mill. Mm -hmm. They're not looking, this is not some kind of, they already think they have the truth. It's exactly like theology. Yeah. Well, I mean, I haven't read that work either. Uh, well, but are you a fan of <laughs> Judith know. Butler? No. Okay. So then there's no reason you should. Right. But the people who, who think Judith Butler is the greatest thing that ever lived. In, Not even familiar. Well, okay. Well, she's, <laughs> she's a, uh, I, I'm just helping you out because a lot of my, a lot of my listeners uh, might not know the work either. Right. So, so let's talk about, keep me on track here. Sure. Okay. Sure. So keep me on track. So we've, I've defined intersectionality. Right. I'm claiming it's a cult and like a religion. Okay. And now I want to say, and this is the dominant ideology in universities right now, and they've taken over entire wings of university architecture. These are the moral engines that are driving disinvitations. They're the moral engines that are driving all of the campus madness. Can be. This is also why Black Lives Matter can, in, can interrupt the gay pride march in Seattle. Because it's an oppression matrix, and those who share the most oppression variables, their voice gets to trump other voices. But I'm interested in this particular conversation with you, and the reason sure. I want to have it with you, usually I delete the emails again, but the reason I want to have it with you, both because you're a great guy and a Portland native, <laughs> but I think that this is a an audience who won't be familiar. They're not in this space, so they won't be familiar necessarily with these concepts. You know, I don't, I don't know. I, I mean, I so so we have this is a science podcast hosted by a comedian. I'm <laughs> a, and as a stand up comedian, this is this is something that we see a lot of in uh, Hollywood or or in the stand up market. If I if I want to say get booked at a college gig, colleges pay a lot of money for comedians. Um, I can submit uh, to uh, to an organization that puts on these showcases of a bunch of different uh, acts to uh, to have the the students come and pick an act. And you can ask any one of the uh, college agents um if it helps or hurts my chances that i'm a straight white male and they right. will say that that hurts my chances right. of being selected for these gigs whether that's good or bad is i mean that i go it's the other type way. of identity politics but let's let, i want to interrogate that comment for a minute so let's test my hypothesis about intersectionality and okay. what they call the oppression matrix are you yeah what are, what are you when you say the oppression matrix can okay, you define sure, that I'll, a little bit I'll, I'm going to talk about that in one second but just sure. let me throw this out let me continue with that idea and throw the 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 question out to you are people more likely to be outraged and offended if you make a joke about gays or if you make a joke about blacks um hmm that's it i mean about or 
are you making it, that that's a tricky question because you can make jokes about um prejudice uh, or you can make jokes like attacking a group of people and that's two very different things i would say uh what would be the harder thing to get away with yeah probably yeah probably attacking um i would be black fearful of attacking the black people yeah for sure. i would say uh i would be less um worried about uh getting assaulted after a show by a gay man than uh than a black dude if what I'm about reputation what about rep- reputationally um i don't you think know it would be more I mean, of a stain not, on you I don't if even you worry about this stuff like i think that i think that um i think that i kind of thrive off of a little bit of controversy in in my career and if i were to push things a little too far and offend people i think that i could probably work my way out of that and explain where it was coming from i don't know i think a lot of my humor is pretty good natured uh yeah okay <laughs> in, so, in the so end. my and then i'm going to talk about what the oppression matrix is so the matrix of oppression so the point is that the more oppressed one is the more severe the consequences i don't mean violent consequences the more s- severe the consequences for you as a comedian for getting booked again sure. and the in, the way that you can use intersectionality to look at is the most of those groups with the most oppression variables when you make a joke about them i'm not this isn't a prescription i'm not saying you ought to do this but i'm saying right. this is a descriptive lens by which we can examine how intersectionality has cut across all sectors of the cultural sphere well, what do you think the what do you think the creation of intersectionality? What what, what do you think? Uh, why do you think it got to where it is today? Okay, do you so think that a lot what, of this was founded in actual? Uh, I mean, I think I think some got, of this came from a place of actual oppression. Yeah, it got that way because Crenshaw and Lindsay will talk about the details of this, but Crenshaw identified. This is complicated. She just basically. I don't really want to go into the details of too much, but that three companies there she found a hole or a gap in discrimination law in which companies needed to satisfy certain requirements and they were hiring black men as opposed to women but let me go back before we i don't i don't want to go down that that road just yet i want to talk about i want to answer your other question about okay. the matrix so that comes from patricia hill so we have to kind of rein the conversation in because it's no a problem. huge conversation it You're, came from I, I consider you the co-host of the show for the day <laughs> okay so, i'll take that so you, I'll, you, I'll take you that take mantle. okay so patricia hill collins published this piece in 1986 in this journal called social problems and the interlocking matrix of oppression is exactly like what it sounds, what it is, that, that there are forms of domination and they form a matrix that describes how those forms of domination intersect to oppress people. There's the variable of race, there's a variable of gender, there's a variable of, uh, the variable of disability status, immigrant status, education, height, weight, etc. And in that milieu, you're... Assign, there's a interesting exercise that some professors use in their class. They have people stand in a line and then, and I've actually done this with my students. It's really interesting. And you say, take a step forward if your parents own their own house, for example. Take a step. We, I can send you the link and if you want to post it, you can. Mm-hmm. Take a step backward if 
you know, your parents never read you a book, something like that, or take a step forward if people are afraid of you because of what you look like. And so basically you see how far you are from the line. All of those, the suite of those oppression variables form an oppression matrix. Okay. And you're given... Let me put this, what I think you're saying in in comedy terms. So <laughs> I, might be, I might be hanging out with, uh, and I'm talking about the occupation of being a comedian, not, right. not in a joke. Um, if I'm hanging out with, uh, uh, com- there, there might, there's a lot of, uh, straight, uh, white male comics out there because more of them start in the first place than minorities. Uh, you know, obviously there's more straight white males that start that, uh, that attempt to do comedy full time than there are. Okay. There. So, and- so this is important. So this is like, I'm going to do a thing with James Damore, the Google memo fellow. Right. And the question is, why is that? Are there certain biological predispositions? Yeah, we for- could say like you know, men need attention more. Females do the selecting, so maybe males are are the ones that need. But it might have to do with some dominance thing. Mm-hmm. Who who knows? But the but I think what you're saying with the oppression matrix is I I might say uh, oh if I were a transgender bisexual uh, Korean. You know, I would, midget. I would, overweight. Midget, uh, overweight midget, I would already have a TV show or something like that. Mm-hmm. And that is the sort of thing that does happen within Hollywood. And, and sometimes, uh, against the person's benefit, people catch breaks much earlier than they are ready for because of where they fall in this matrix. So it doesn't always help them. Yeah. Um, so either, but, but is, is that, is that kind of what you're, uh, what you're saying? If, if I, I'm, I'm just kind of trying to simplify a little bit and make it, accessible and now or I'm, now i'm absolutely paranoid because i thought i was making it so simple now I'm no, thinking, oh my not. gosh i'm complicating more no 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 you're, you're you're fine okay so i'm just these trying are to convey not that i'm understanding you prescriptions okay that. so these are not moral prescriptions for how one should act sure. that people are on the bottom of this the most vulnerable people should be given the most opportunities mm-hmm. I, I, and i don't want to convey the idea that I'm advocating any particular morality. I'm saying that this is a lens. This is the dominant lens right now through which people view the moral landscape. Mm-hmm. And these lenses are being fashioned onto people's eyeballs in academia. A whole generation of students are viewing the world this way. It manifests in identity politics. It manifests it in obvious and less obvious things, disinvitation, space safe spaces, microaggressions, trigger warnings. These are not only under evidence, but there's actually evidence against each of these specific in, in these specific domains with these specific things. It's a new religion, which we haven't even gotten to yet, how that's a religion, how it functions as a religion, how it's a moral community, which is vital that operates. And people have these moral impulses and they attempt to discharge these moral impulses in the channels that exist, these communities, and they find perfect communities in academic spaces. And literally, we are indoctrinating an an entire generation of people. And at the core of this stuff, these impulses are very reasonable, as I said before. They're very reasonable to help people. But the problem is that it has gone, they've gone haywire. Mm-hmm. And they've institutionalized these ideas with diversity offices, and and I and I want to talk about how that structures itself, N- not whether or not that should be the case, but I want to talk about how it. Fu- there's a rise of the nuns. That is, there's a 
in secular Western societies, the number of people who self-report, and Phil Zuckerman has done some great work on this at, from Pitzer, the number of people who self-report having no religion or being a-religious has increased. Mm-hmm. But my contention to you is that's not true. They've just converted. They've converted to the new religion of intersectionality, and they might not even know or identify it as a religion. And so what I'd like to do is to clarify some of the structures and the way that that operates as a religion so that then we can use that as a, as a tool to understand this phenomenon. Yeah. Cool. Uh, that, that's exciting. I mean, I I certainly wouldn't have considered these ideas in a, a religion. So that is that is the the novel idea that we're going to hear about. Yeah, and and I I want to I want to. So why don't we just start with three things? Sure. Why don't we start with? And I published a piece about this with the guest, Doctor Lindsay, who will be speaking. The Christians, for example, have original sin. Intersectionalist intersectionality, which is fueled primarily, or it used to be fueled by people on the far left. Now it's becoming ubiquitous and mainstream and the dominant ideology. They have privilege. So original sin and privilege often operate very similarly. And I can send you the link if you want to post it to your... uh, Sure. Okay. So it's something you're born with. It's a stain. You being white, heterosexual, male... You're born with that. You can't change it. You're it's a beautiful stain. I look, in, I look in the mirror every day I'm like, what a beautiful stain I've been given. Well, don't, whatever you do, don't say that in academia because you'll be, you'll be run out of the house. <laughs> so, so I think privilege is, a, privilege is a big part of it. The people are born with the sin of privilege. That's one thing that okay. I want to put across. The second one is that traditional religions have blasphemy, and they're even they've institutionalized those even legally in jurisprudence, contemporary jurisprudence. There are blasphemy laws in certain countries, and apostasy in I think nine Muslim countries is punishable by death right now in Sharia law. So, intersectionalists have something that operates very similarly. They have political correctness, and they have institutionalized that in our university system. And the mechanism for control is diversity boards. They tell you what you can and cannot say. They tell you what's acceptable speech and what's not acceptable speech. So it's an, that's another way that it functions. And there are small ways like, you know, safe spaces are like, you know, churches, the oppressed are like saints, et cetera. You, you don't, you don't question that the tenets of intersectionality, they're to be, cl- they're not to be clarified or questioned, but merely believed. And I think that's, that's a key point. So that's when you said, would you, you know, what if I threw the water in your face? The impulse is not to punish, is to punish. It's not to debate a wrong thing. You don't debate this stuff. These folks don't debate. We invited the whole women's studies department at PSU to be on stage with James Damore and I, but I knew they wouldn't accept because they don't have an apologetic. They don't have an effa- a defense of their ideology. And built into the structure of their ideology, they can't defend it by definition. There can be no great defender of their faith like William Lane Craig. No great defender can arise because of the structure of their ideology. But, I mean, it, it isn't this... I mean, certainly people are referencing and have referenced a number of sociological studies throughout the years cultures influence on people's perception and and i i mean aren't groups using uh things like implicit bias tests to yeah, there's justify a whole some, i'm not line saying, of literature on a implicit bias test and whether or not those are legitimate right, and the right. legitimacy has come to be questioned that right. doesn't mean that people don't 
aren't biased against certain racial groups, but it's not clear that those instruments test what people think they're testing. Right, right. I'm not saying that the studies are correct. Yeah. I'm just saying that aren't people actually attempting to use something that is at least being passed off as science oh to God, justify. This, you have made me so happy. <laughs> you, no, really. I mean, you really. Oh, wonderful. You That's have what I'm made, here to do. I'm just, I just like smiles. God, I'm just so happy right now. Okay, so I want to talk about that. Let's okay. talk about that. So here's the other part of of how this has become so insidious. Mm-hmm. These folks... And by the way, I'm going to ask you some devil's advocate questions. Uh, please just do. So, just P- so please. You know. I, in All fact, right. I insist on it. Okay. Let me explain this idea yeah. first. Please do. So these folks have created their own canon. They have made their own journals. They publish their own journals. Very few of these works are cited. And what they've done is they've attempted to, they have a body of knowledge, quote unquote knowledge, which is actually not knowledge. It's not justified in any, in Plato's Theotetus, any kind of, it, it has no, it's not tethered to the world in any lawful way. And they use this not only to credential themselves, but to get promotion and tenure. And then they're wonder, they wonder why they're not invited to the party. Right. So it's in the same way that Christians have line. And I don't mean to just pick on Christians. We can find other, other faiths and we well, can use I those think examples. It's easier to, I mean, I was raised Christian. That's why I'm so using I think it. I'm That's more why I'm using making it. fun of, or I'm not, not even not not making, making not fun making of it. Fun, I didn't mean to say yeah. making fun of, uh, using Christians as an example because I was raised one, was meant to be one, never took, but yeah. And just as a parenthetical, but worth noting, Christians have a redemption narrative. These folks have no redemption. You can never be redeemed. I, 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 you, okay. I I think that there's some redeeming quality. Can I? Can I? Yeah, see? I want to go. I want to go on the. Uh, I'd like to go on the fact that they've created their own lines of literature. Sure. But the redemption narrative you see in Acts thirteen, Acts sixteen thirty to thirty one, and Ephesians two eight to nine. So you have this idea that you can be <laughs> redeemed, right? Yeah. Intersectional feminists don't have this idea. So they've created their own body of literature. It would be the, the parallel would be like N.T. Wright or one of these folks who looks at the resurrection of Jesus and he basically takes other people who have, who have, there's no evidence for the resurrection. There's, we don't even know that there was an historical Jesus. It's total bullshit. Right. But these, they, they fashioned lines of literature that are totally untethered to reality. But here's the insidious part about this. If you say to a Christian, hey, you, you, you know, you talk about Jesus and faith and walking on water and the Christian says to you, hey, look, ultimately you can't prove that Jesus didn't walk on water. Well, the, the, the response to that is probably, you know, right. I, I actually can't prove it. Now, of course, that doesn't mean you should believe it. it doesn't give you license to pretend to know something you don't know. But the difference is with, with intersectionalists, they don't have to have faith because they just point to their canon of literature that they've, it's totally bogus. It's completely made up. And they use that not only to credential themselves, but to leverage themselves to sit at the adult table to have mature discussions. But yet these folks, you only in theology and intersectional feminism do you see biology denialism these people are rampant biology denialists right well i mean i think that comparing um jesus being the son of god a person that we can't necessarily verify existed some bible written 150 years or whatever passed that through the through generations of the world's longest game of telephone to come up with these stories that 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 being a little bit shakier ground than say taking a race iat where or i iat or ait whatever the, the where i can uh, click on um where i'm i'm words with 
a uh, we're talking the, about an anagram or something. No, what are you no, no. About? The um, the IAT, uh, the uh, the the race, uh, the implicit bias test. Okay. Uh, implicit association test. Okay. IAT. Okay. So I can take one of these, yeah. and I can see that I have uh, some implicit bias in awesome. this test. Whether that means anything or not now is a we're whole other. Now, now that's a. But you're comparing Jesus disappearing to a test that I can take on the computer. Okay. Whether that actually means anything or now not is we're, a total, now totally we're heating, different baby. thing. Now we're getting to I, our conversation. I, I think, that, I, I think right. that might be a slightly unfair comparison. All right, I'll tell you why it's not. I'll tell you why it's All not. Right. Here's the question you need to ask two questions to, to folks who advocate this. The first question is what's called the defeasibility test, or you can, the layman's words are a disconfirmation test. Take somebody who advocates for implicit bias tests. Take somebody who advocates for space, safe spaces, trigger warnings, microaggressions, what have you, and ask them a single. Ask them two questions. Here, the, we can distill it down to two single questions. One is, on under what conditions, what evidence could I provide you with that would make you question implicit bias tests? What evidence could I provide you with that would make you question trigger warnings or space safe spaces, that these should be institutionalized or that these are good things? That's the first question. You will find the answer to that. Well, we already know the answer to that. There is no evidence because they don't believe it on the basis of evidence in the first place. They believe it on the basis of that it accords with their moral impulses. The second thing is Eric Weinstein's question, which is a, absolutely a genius question. When the truths of biology conflict with gender theory, some truths in gender theory, on which side do we fall into? Do we do we go with biology or do we go with gender studies? Now, they will either, very rarely will they give you a straight answer. You, you know that somebody, this is a kind of a litmus test, mm -hmm. is when they obfuscate. It's when they don't give you a straight answer to the question. Whereas if you ask me, I want you right now to ask me that question. What question is it? Glad you're paying attention. I want you I, to ask me. I, no, I am paying I want, attention. I'm, I'm writing down good. four I want, other questions that I have for okay. you. I want you to ask me the question when there's a conflict between a quote-unquote fact or truth in gender okay. studies and a, a quote-unquote fact of biology on which side do I defer? Yeah, so which side do you defer? Biology. Right. Do you see how simply, cleanly I answer? I didn't I, obfuscate. I didn't run around the bush. I didn't say they never conflict. But, but it's but there's but there's uh, bio, biology and so, I I have sociologists on the podcast. I have biologists on the podcast all the time. Sociologists that have uh, no intersection with gender studies, yeah. uh, and and I can sit across t the table from them and have someone on that's saying the exact opposite, the t looking at the exact same study and drawing the exact opposite conclusions, depending on if right, they're that, a sociologist or right. If so a that's just that's just a or physicist for that matter, right? So that's just a form of confirmation bias. Shermer talks about the fact that our brains are engines of belief and we look in our right. epistemic landscape, you know, how we know things and what we know, and we, we bend those facts. This is the other thing they're unbelievably good at. They're unbelievably good at bending anomalous data points to fit a narrative. We all do that. But I'm not talking about a single data point or a study or having interpreting that through a particular bias or not bias. I'm talking about whether or not established truths of biology, you know, and we can talk about the specifics, but I really don't want pedantry or to get lost in the details. I want to convey these basic themes. The thesis about is how this is a religion. In traditional Abrahamic religions, 
the overwhelming majority of adherents will fail the defeasibility test. They will not be able to tell you under what conditions their beliefs could be false. The exact same right. mechanism is operating within third wave intersectional feminism. This is, these are, these are a loose net in a sense, and this is worth exploring if you want. Th- these are positions that people take that are either under evidenced or unevidenced and they've been elevated they've been morally elevated and reinforced by their moral communities to come as absolute which is kind of weird because they're postmodernists in general but as absolute universal truths about suffering about you know the oppressed the victim they don't call it the victim olympics but the victim victimhood and how we, <laughs> victim olympics i think that was gad sad's phrase or uh right. Uh, that was that's not my phrase, but but it's like grievance jockeying, victim jockeying. All these terms have been used to describe it. But the by the way, the, I love complaining personally. Love it. Don't you, you try to take that away from me. It's one of my favorite things to do. I, I, so I don't. I don't think. <laughs> I, don't, I, I don't mean to stop you in your tracks. No, just, I'm just as just, I said. These just making these, a little light. No, no. Joke no here here there, I'm, I'm trying way. to convey. I'm trying to simplify an unbelievably complicated, no, highly are. controversial and, idea. And let me even simplify it more. Yeah. I, I mean, I think that I I think that here here's my issue with some of the things that you're, please, you're saying please, please. in terms of it's not it's not that I disagree with you. It's the um it's the the level of uh intensity that you bring to it. So so I might say to my girlfriend yeah. that males have a biological desire to uh, ha- favor in certain situations quantity rather than quality in terms of males may be driven to want to have sex with more females. The idea that my girlfriend doesn't want to hear that shit, yeah. I... I I then can't be like, well, you're a part of a cult. That's why you don't okay, want to hear so, this. It's just like, well, no, so she probably doesn't want to hear that from her boyfriend that her boyfriend wants to fuck okay. a bunch of women. Okay, like that's, so, that's just kind of human nature. So here's the difference. You're talking about your experience with your girlfriend and which, let me finish the thought. Just as it's yeah, crystal clear to me that Trump... And Pence and those other lunatics that he's put in his cabinet, these far right wing maniacs yeah. are destroying the country on the right in our political institutions. Right. It is just as clear to me in the left I'm that these folks yeah. are absolutely destroying our our engines of knowledge right. production. They're destroying our universities. They're sabotaging free, not even vandalizing the very institutions that gave rise to the possibility of their protests in the first place. They are destroying the American institutions and the freedom. I mean, and then they paint me as some kind of conservative, but I'm intense about this because right. I see what's at stake. I see what's at stake economically for our, now you keep nodding this whole time. So no, that's I how very much, I'm, gl- I'm very, yeah. very happy. You're bringing up the context of the situation because yeah. people outside of the a- academia aren't going to view this issue with the same level of importance that that you view it because they might be oblivious to it like i am i never went to college i i'm not familiar with the culture other than what i hear from interviewing professors you know and and that's why to bring it back to why one of the one of the reasons i want to be on this show Mm -hmm. is i want to reach an audience that this would not normally reach and here's what i want to tell you 
our academic institutions are under attack by right. left-wing maniacs. Right. In the same way that our political institutions are under attack by Trump and his henchmen. We can withstand one of those things. We cannot withstand both. Yeah. And I'd add to that, which Helen Pluckrose and Lindsay and others have said, that that's one of the reasons that I'm going after the far left. It's not only the pond in which I'm swimming, but I think that that enables the far right. Right. We can talk about that, but this is a a unbelievably damaging I don't even know what it is, a movement, a kind of cultural myopia. It's something that people have that they need to be aware of what's happening in their universities. When professors end of course surveys can be used to limit their freedom of speech, when the things that you can talk about, I mean, just think about that. What What is the range of acceptable discourse in a college ethics class? And if, you know, go ahead. Well, uh- See, this is another thing that I want to bring up. If you want to, like, using a specific, we can talk about Milo, uh, who got himself in trouble and is a little out of the spotlight now. But at first, when I saw that universities were canceling some of his gigs or whatever, I'm like, well, isn't that really anyone's right to cancel? Like, like I have 45 minutes of material about buttholes. If I look through all of my notes... <laughs> No one's and ever I, said that could, to me I before. Could, I can put. Good. I can. I have enough jokes about anal sex or poo or whatever, and and the idea that someone may may not want to book a show of yeah. me talking about buttholes for forty five minutes doesn't isn't like intruding on my freedom. No, of absolutely speech. not. Absolutely that's, not. That's just them selecting. Yeah, <laughs> selecting something else. Yeah. And that was always my issue with him. And, okay, and pause. This is where I think the, okay. the left went wrong. Okay, go ahead. Was because. They should have never been offended by him. As a comedian, I was bored by the guy. I was bored to tears. I, I thought that his idea of him saying something controversial was something like a comic would talk about 30 years okay, ago. Okay, here's the difference. Trite. Here's the difference. Two things. I don't want to talk about Milo too much, but here's the, the difference. difference. The, the first difference is that you're talking about whether or not they're going to invite you. These are student groups in which students pay fees. Right. Like the Free Thinkers has James Damore coming. The students pay fees, and we're talking about people who get disinvited. Dawkins oh, was right. disinvited. People who get Bill Maher was disinvited. People who get disinvited because they advocate a position politically that other people don't like. Mm-hmm. So a small Ben Shapiro would be a great example. Even my friend Michael Shermer. So a small set of people want to determine what the felt the rest of their fellow students can listen to. This is authoritarianism. This is naked authoritarianism. When I okay, I might the, you might not have a good answer for for this, so let me know if you may not even want to answer it. When would you say is there like a point in history if you look back where this kind of turned into the snowball that created where we are now, where where it started, where where it became. Uh, not just ideas; it became, as you call it, a religion. Yeah, but I can't. When would you say it started becoming? I can't a religion? give you a genealogical marker for that. I can hypothesize ballpark I'm, like I'm, twenty years ago, you know, five years ago, five years yeah. ago. Yeah, and so that's why they call Ben Shapiro, who's an Orthodox Jew, a Nazi. Mm-hmm. Imagine that. I mean, like, wow. I'm not a, a big fan of saying I'm offended, but wow, that's right. Uh, that's why they call Brett Weinstein, who's totally on the left, a Nazi. 
That's why they call me a Nazi sympathizer. Why am I a Nazi sympathizer? Is it because I've ever made it a, a, a comment against Jews? No. Is it? Be, it's because I made in the with Dave Rubin and Christine Hoff Summers, and then subsequently on Twitter, I said I am opposed to punching people in the face if they have odious beliefs. Mm-hmm. Nazis or not, that was from the. Sure. Know, right. Sure, and the, so the Nazi punching thing that was all sure. Okay. Yeah. And so then I said. Give me a specific example of somebody who's held an odious belief, gotten punched in the head, and changed their belief as a result. Give me one. There is none because it's absurd. We cannot have a society that devolves into violence. And if you want to look at the opposite to that, look at Daryl Davis, the black guy who goes around and befriends Ku Klux Klansmen. He doesn't do that by yelling at them. He does that by literally befriending them. But that's part and parcel of intersectionality. They don't want debate. They don't want conversations. Right. They want disinvitation. Speech is a form of violence. Political correctness is a way to enforce that. Mm-hmm. And people, not only do people need to know, parents who are paying tuition need to know. That's who needs to know. They need to put pressure on institutions to allow professors to have speech again, to allow debates. Look, if 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 a Christian, and my, my anti-religious anti-faith pedigree is absolutely impeccable. Nobody could ever accuse me of being a closet believer or a sympathizer ever. If a Christian wanted to come sponsored by a Christian organization that wanted to claim that the earth is 5,000 years old, he should have every, or she should have every right to do so. Mm-hmm. I would not say that person should be heckled. I would not say that person should be drowned out with a bullhorn. I would say that there should be a subsequent rebuttal to that. Right. I would say that that we could arrange a debate. We could, but that's what you do in civilized societies. And you might learn a lot more from having to understand if you if you've never um, studied physics before, and the first thing that you see is this person giving a speech on flat earth, and then you get to see the rebuttal. You might actually learn something yeah. from that so, conversation. So, a flat earth is great because that's unfortunately made a comeback right now. <laughs> and that's exactly where these conversations right. need to take place in the academy. And they're not taking place in the academy. And there's a reason they're not taking place in the academy. And that reason is intersectionality. Mm-hmm. That's what we have to come back to. And that's what that's the explanatory mechanism for all of the madness. Well, don't you think that there is a little bit of elasticity to this stuff, a little bit of backs, uh, um, uh, what's the word that I'm looking for? Don't you think that, that this is kind of, because this is new, you're saying just, just in the last five years, this has become a religion. So this becomes this really weighty topic. No, that's not what I said. So in the last five years, the disinvitations have escalated tremendously. Right, right. And Greg Lukanoff from this organization, FIRE, has detailed and documented where it is. I mean, that it really escalated in the last five years, but it's been around maybe 15 years. So, uh, you know, uh, let me use the example of, uh, of, of the 60s and psychedelics. Right. <laughs> so... So the 60s rolls around and, and there's this big crackdown on all these psychedelic users. And then there's all these people doing psychedelics that are saying like, no, these things are a miracle and everyone should be doing them. And right. there was and there was these two kind of extreme sides 
But I don't think either side would have been that extreme had it not been for the other side. And don't don't you think that this is this is a response potentially to something that maybe was warranted uh-huh. at one point? I think that there that this comes from a place that there was, like you said, some some merit where along the way we did uh, uh, there was some discrimination against groups of people. Unquestionably, that's right. why these impulses at their core are so important. Right. But the way to discharge those moral impulses is not to make up asinine lines of literature that have nothing to do with reality. It's mm-hmm. not to smear people as a Nazi or a racist or a bigot for wanting to not have people punched in the head. You don't achieve those ambitions. In fact, you achieve the opposite of, of those ambitions. You know, it's like when people block cars from getting to the Trump rally. Like, what do you really think is happening? You really think those people say, well, you know, I, I wanted to go to the Trump rally, but fortunately they blocked my car. Now I realize he's a maniac. Mm-hmm. No, 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 people don't think like that. And right. so these radical excesses, right? they're not, the reason that I'm attacking We should all chill this, the fuck out and have some conversations, perhaps. Well, yeah, civil conversations right. and dialogues. And if you don't like what someone has to say, it should be unthinkable to you to perpetrate physical violence against them. Unthinkable, particularly in the university. And now they want to cut for the DeMore event. They want to cut the power lines to the building. We we can have civil discourse. We can talk to people. We can have open conversation. And when we lose that, we've lost. The whole thing is down. The whole enterprise is gone. When we start talking about violence as a solution to our problems. I mean, this is serious shit. And so if you wonder why I'm intense about it, it's because I realize what's at stake. No, yeah. That's, well, this is the, it's the point that I wanted to make is that from outside academia, I don't think people know just uh, how much of a, an issue this has become. Yeah, look at the latest Cato report. 55% of people who classify themselves as liberals, and I can send you this link. I'm, I'm pretty sure this. I just read this. And you can say, oh, Cato, Cato, whatever, uh, believe in, in you know, punching people. Or, but it's not even so much about the punching. It's like punching as a proxy to. It's this idea that the, the enlightenment value of being able to have a dialogue, a discussion with someone about with whom you disagree, we're losing that. We're becoming more polarized. We're not capable of having civil conversations with people. And as a consequence of that, it's ripping our society apart. But those, that is being driven by gender studies. Mm-hmm. That doesn't come ex nihilo. Like people, that, that's not a cultural phenomenon that just happened. It doesn't fall like manna from heaven. I mean, that just didn't come from nothing. Right. It has a very identical, identifiable genesis and source. Mm-hmm. And it's terrifying to me. So what what do you think are some of the next steps that you'd like to see being done? If If, if academia was all of a sudden, they wake up tomorrow, they go, oh, I didn't realize this problem had gotten out of control. What what do you think can be done within academia to start creating more balance, to start creating more open dialogues? Well, Jonathan Haidt has a the Heterodox Academy has talked about that extensively. Jordan Peterson has touched on that. You have a lot of people in this space fighting to reclaim some of those values. I, I think the the more I've been doing this writing on thinking about critical thinking, I think that the key to all of this stuff begins and ends in morality. It's that people have 
moral impulses and how do we construct systems out of those moral impulses? I mean, that's what a judiciary is, right? We adjudicate independently mm-hmm. when people have different ideas. So people have already laid the groundwork for this. But my today, what I want to accomplish with you before Dr. Lindsay gets on and, and speaks to you about the specifics, what I wanted to accomplish today is to really let people know that this for a lot of these adherents, it's like a cult. It is like a religion. It operates like a religion. They have had a, they've been profoundly influential in our academic institutions. They're damaging people's cognitive structures. They're attempting to indoctrinate people. They're manufacturing their own lines of literature. This is a very serious problem that we need to be aware of. So that was my purpose here today. Mm-hmm. So it's definitely an ideology. I think most people would agree with, with with that. But what, I mean, I guess I don't know what is the difference between a religion and an ideology. How can you make the claim that it's a religion? I mean, they, they're not getting tax exemptions. They they aren't claiming. No, that's part of the part status. of the problem is that they're is that their adherents don't view it as a religion. That's part mm-hmm. of the problem, and they don't view it as a religion for many ways. One of which is they don't have faith. They don't have a metaphor. Well, we should also talk about how it's different from religion. I think that's important too, because it, yeah. it has some fundamental differences. But it doesn't have a it doesn't have a metaphysical realm, which is one thing. There are no like gods or ain'ts, angels or or, or uh, saints. Do you want to talk about how it's different from a religion? Sure, I would love to. Okay, so so yeah. b- let's polish that that thought off first. So it's not a religion. They, it doesn't have faith. It doesn't operate in the same way because they have their own canon of knowledge that they've invented from nothing. They don't need faith. They just point to this imag- this real canon of knowledge which has imaginary entities in it. Mm-hmm. All right, so let's talk about it. So uh, we talked about one already. There's no redemption narrative in intersectionality, right? So are we, we cool on that? Yeah. Okay, cool. So here's another one. It doesn't have any kind of supernaturalism. There's no de- deism. There's no there's no mysticism. Although Buddhism, for example. What about pussy power? <laughs> I just wanted to see the look on your face when I said that. Here Sometimes I, being, I just say things. I'm just trying totally to lighten serious. your I know. I'm trying I know, to lighten like, your mood I'm a little totally bit. Serious. That's what I'm here I, for. I'm totally... I just like that smile on your face. That's, that's all. good. That, all uh, right. that threw me for a loop. I'll give you that. Okay. Well, I'll give you that. Right. That's good. That's all that's I'm here good. to do. Just get, lighten I, things up a little. I'll give you that. That's good. Um <laughs> okay so I had all i'm sorry to interrupt no no no, no, no. no it's all good we're having it's, fun no it's all good it's okay. all good uh was that our purpose to have fun like i came in here no, with, an, with an agenda no, no, like no. i really I, wanted I, to like i like learning yeah, I, yeah. I i and that's what this podcast is all about but i also i feel like i'm creating a little bit of a balance here by lightening it up a little this is a heavy subject and like you said this is going to be very controversial and everything else and it's my I view my role as as being able to get these ideas communicated to as many people as possible. So the very people that you think that in your head might be offended by these ideas, I think that there's workarounds so, and mean, a way to connect with so, with people. So look, let, let me ask you a question. You're not in the space. You don't mm-hmm. play this game. So is but it, it but it affects. I mean, this is a very this is a hollywood thing this is this is an entertainment business right uh, okay so so let me let me ask you a question so let's just bracket for a moment the relationship between intersectionality and the fact that we don't have civil conversations the Mm -hmm. fact that of disinvitation let's let's say that 
we're not going to say that there's a causal relationship with that. But now here's my question to you. As someone not in the academy, mm -hmm. do you see it as a problem that, for example, when Ben Shapiro, do you know who Ben Shapiro is? No. He's a, an Orthodox Jew, and I say that because that informs his moral view of the world. Mm -hmm. He's a conservative speaker. He has a podcast like yourself, highly successful podcast like yourself. And when he goes to college campuses, it costs hundreds of thousands of dollars in security. Mm -hmm. So forgetting about intersectionality for a minute and third wave feminism, do you see it as a, do you see disinvitations as a problem? Do you think we've become more polarized as a society? As a comedian, mm -hmm. do you, yeah, go ahead. I, I do. I mean, I am. I'm so you more and more nervous about performing in front of crowds because I think I think people are just getting very worked up okay. and very sensitive and worked up and angry on both sides of things. Okay. And do you I'm feel that more on college campuses? Political. Do you feel that more on college campuses or no? Oh, well, I don't perform in college campuses. Oh, okay. I just know from talking with people like yourself and other guests uh, is who I get a feel from this. Okay. And definitely... I would say in the fields of evolutionary biology and psychology, which are my two favorite, those are my wheelhouse. That's, that's my jam. That's like the big foundation of this podcast. I would say within those fields, particularly um, there, there seems to be a lot of this kind of talk. Okay. So you see, and again, bracketing intersectionality, you see these, I'm not even gonna say consequences because that makes it seem causal. You see these phenomena mm -hmm. as problematic detrimental to society not really in anybody's well-being right a problem yeah i mean okay. it can be um, okay so the sure. next thing we need to do then is to ask if the if there's a linear relationship if you can draw a line from these problems mm -hmm. to what i'm suggesting to you is the primary culprit which is intersectionality and third wave feminism if we can do that then we can make that clear mm -hmm. but before we do that we have to you know, we define intersectionality. We talked about it. We talked about its manifestations. Are these natural consequences of this? Look, we all I want. I think they might be. Yeah, I think it's clear to me that they are. Look, we all want to remediate injustice. We yeah. all want to fight the good fight. Uh, we all want to do what's right. We we all want to have a kind of. Went to a talk yesterday about care ethics. We want to have a kind of care and do the do the right thing. What the right thing is is is. <laughs> it's difficult to figure out, but I would argue to you and to your listeners is something you should sincerely consider is that the, these are direct manifestations of an ideology that has a stranglehold on academia and has taken over and people have bought into the Kool-Aid mm -hmm. and they are indoctrinating students and it is literally ripping the society apart Right, and it has to be stopped. We have to put an end to the madness. I mean, my take is that uh, I think people are too fucking dramatic. <laughs> uh, me? Honestly, you think I'm too? No, tell me the truth. Tell no, me the truth. No, no, not you. I think I think that it's a good indicator of exactly what's going on. I think anytime you look at the news, the news is bidding for our attention, and what uh, and how. How does the brain decide what to give attention to, what to give its resources to? It looks for the most dramatic thing. This is if you turn on the television and you watch the news, it doesn't matter what news channel you're they're showing you some shark attack or mm. some bombing or some stupid thing that's statistically irrelevant. Mm. 
And because it's, you know, the, this great story that scares the crap out of people. And I think that we're all, we're all trying to like make our, our thing known, like plant our flag in this thing and say, this is the most important. And, and I, I worry if that is helping create more, it, I don't know if that's helping create more like diversity of ideas and help us understand ourselves more, or if oh, it's creating, yeah. or if it's creating these, these okay, like you, slingshotting misbalances yeah. of, of, of seesawing effects of. So you the, used, you use the phrase diversity of ideas. This is absolutely not what those folks are interested in. They right. don't want any diversity. Right, of right, ideas. right, right. They, I, I agree with. It. I, I'm, I, I think that I'm on your side with these things. Yeah. In, in terms of what you're saying, I do wonder. Um. I do wonder if the way, <laughs> I, I, I think that. You know, I wish people could just sit down and like have some tea and like totally this shit out. I don't. I don't think that. I think that public debates don't even help this, really. I think that conversations like we're having right now, yeah. Help and this. you know I the irony of you know, this. you know, not, not I'm no, I agree. Biased having a I podcast. agree, and you know the irony of this. This is this is the irony of this is that the best conversations are now outside the classroom. The conversations we need to have are outside the classroom. No. And then how do you cultivate that? I mean, what, what does that, well, what does that mean? Well, you're doing do you your job. You've been on Rogan. Mm-hmm. Great podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, so folks, people are hungry to have these conversations. Yeah. People are hungry to talk about these issues. But we need to reclaim our academic institutions and our centers of learning as places where we can have seasoned debate, mm-hmm. where we can talk. about Even people, especially people who advocate ideas we may find morally reprehensible because those are not only are civil liberties, they're kind of like fundamental values in a sense. Yeah. The idea that you can express yourself or express your opinion, or you shouldn't be looked at on the basis of your race. You know, the, I won't name the school, but one school here had a, one school in town had a, and I was astonished that this was illegal. They had a, an event with all people of color speakers and white people weren't allowed to speak. And I asked my buddy who's a judge, I said, I can't believe this is lawful. Like, is a public institution a public bill? He said, absolutely. But it's highly inadvised because then white people could do the same thing. Mm-hmm. So right. I mean, we, they have, we don't in need comedy, to, there's like diversity showcases. Yeah. So what, what, here's the, here's a bad thing. I'll but. throw this idea out to you. If there's an earthquake, we live in Portland. Listen, you know, there's an earthquake mm-hmm. right where we are right now. This is right on a fall line. If there's an earthquake here right now, we don't need to be thinking about intersectionality. We need to be thinking about subordinate position. We need to be thinking about those identities that bring us together, like American. We need to, humanity. We need to think about how to work with each other to solve our problems, not to find differences. You know, not every, every, this whole myth this whole narrative about rape cultures and white men as rapists and they're wrong these are very they're they're not just damaging narratives in terms of their truth or falsity but these are psychologically debilitating to those people who are cast as racist and rapists who are simply not yeah and i think that that has an alienating effect on a, a whole generation of young men particularly a whole generation of young men white men heterosexual men 
we don't need to think in terms of finer gradations, the granularity of, well, your intersection is this and you slept with this guy or this person. No, we need to think about things that unite us so we can move forward. How do we help society? How do we build ourselves? How do we take care of home opposite direction? And the tragedy is that we, that I share the moral impulses of the folks who are propagating the madness. That's the insanity of this whole thing. No, I mean, it's, I, I think that people need to understand human nature a little bit more and that it, I, I, I do think that, uh, yeah, I mean, I don't know. I don't know what to tell you what that, what the answer is. I'm glad that we're having these conversations. I think that there's plenty of minority, like trans, transgender minorities that are like assholes as well, just because someone's a minority doesn't make them right. And I think that there are plenty of straight white privileged dudes that have a long history of of abusing power too yeah. and that's so a, that's a, there's there's truths in that's in, right in that's why things, that's so. why there is legitimacy and right. we need that's why we need to have a conversation i'm happy to have a conversation about privilege we need to have those conversations right yeah i mean how did the straight white guys well especially yeah. a straight white but again that's that's why where we go back to identity politics right, right? and so i guess here's a couple of questions is it better to have Clarence Thomas on the Supreme Court or is it better to have a liberal, a white male heterosexual cis liberals in the Supreme Court? You know, we should, we should have some, uh, we, you should, we should start like an online forum where, um, we vote in our own laws where we where adjudicate. You, we, no, 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 no. Where, where it's, it's just a, a chat where you get to debate whatever, but you just have an avatar with with some silly name so there's no there's no gender assigned there's no race assigned no one knows how we know what anonymity has done right, to right. the internet and how it creates what we need is <laughs> what we need is exactly the opposite we need places that if i don't believe in the concept of sacred but if there is right. ever anything that should be as a fundamental enlightenment value is we need a space where we can have a discourse and feel free to express our opinions. I think that's one of the reasons why people were so shocked that Trump won, because people who supported Trump simply couldn't say it. A lot of conservatives in this country feel disenfranchised, not necessarily from the political system, but from their speech. They can't really say what they think because Mm -hmm. of a culture of political... We need to know what people think, and we need to be able to engage those ideas freely. That's the only help. That's the only hope that we have. We Mm -hmm. Our hope is in dialogue. That's how we mediate our differences. We mediate our differences through discourse and not violence. Mm-hmm. So if, if you want to help someone trapped in a life of delusion, what you need to do is you need to create systems where you can challenge and question their, their dogma and their beliefs. It's very easy to help enforce dogma. It's very difficult to bring people out of it. Mm-hmm. Well, so... Uh, I I often ask guests to give like a little homework assignment to a potential listener. Is there something that, it, you know, whether it's uh, sometimes it's meditate or go for a jog each day or whatever, but, but is there something so it, like if, if someone uh, uh, like start a meet, <laughs> is there like meetup groups for this? Is there any, what kind of resources um, to help understand this are there in, in communities are there are there any like freedom of speech kind of <laughs> well groups that people uh, can... there are certainly books jonathan Hyde has some great books about this 
Okay, how about this? How about how about uh, a book for someone? uh, The righteous, the righteous mind by Jonathan Haidt is a good start. Um, My actually the 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 one thing I'd highly recommend is to listen to the next podcast where you're going to go in in depth with James Lindsay on this stuff, and he's going to really go into some details that I didn't. This is just today was a thematic overview of this stuff. A little one on one. Yeah, and a little one on one exactly, and and I think that the the approach that you have matters. So, you know, homework assignments, I I would say it's something to do. And that is to just listen and pay attention. So when someone tells you something, or when you're in a conversation with someone, really try to listen to what their reasons are. Like, Mm -hmm. why does somebody believe that? And when you know why they believe that, it's much easier to understand where they're coming from. So that's uh, a rather large homework assignment seems simple, but it's very complicated. Yeah, I mean, I think that's just being mind a little more mindful in your everyday interactions. Yeah, not, yeah. not necessarily. Uh, and don't meet aggression. So, like, I was at the at the dog park the other day, and my dog, I bent down, and this little dog jumped up on me, and I was like, ah. And then he jumped up on me again, and and I said no. And this guy went berserk on me, like, yo, yo, my fucking dog, who the fuck are you? And I was firm, and I looked at him, and I said, sorry that I yelled at your dog. Uh, Didn't mean to offend your dog or offend you. Your dog jumped. And I could have met that with some kind of aggression, Mm -hmm. right? And I'm not saying I'm a great guy or anything. I'm just saying that it's very easy to become angry at somebody if they say something. And I think for all of us, it's it's myself included it's very important to attempt to not become angry like anger shouldn't be the go-to right listening for why someone believes what they believe is the first go-to that's why i've pretty much completely gone off social media recently because i'm much less angry i'm much less getting other people fired up and everything else when i'm off of social media i actually put a lot more thought into the things that I have to say. Rather yeah, it's than a cesspool. Like, it's not. It's not. not doing anybody any favors. It's a cesspool. Yeah. I've been off because I've been writing my book. So, in, and if I could say another thing that I think is important mm-hmm. is, you're never less than because of who you are. It, it doesn't matter what your intersecting identity characteristics are or happen to be. So, I think it's important when you hear any kind of identity politics or any kind of criticism about someone because of an immutable characteristic they possess, some kind of a light bulb should go off. Some kind of a, uh, of, you know, the old Star Trek, you know, the red light, the red, the warning alert mm. should go off. And I think that and just basically kindness, paying attention and not resorting to anger as a first resort, I think they're a good. And if you do find that there are instances in, in your community that, you you think are are morally wrong speak up to those and say what those are but the way to do that is not through disrupting an event the way to do that is through civil discourse and protest and organizing your own event Mm -hmm. and that's how we move more closely together as a society to work on our shared problems it's not by calling people nazis who clearly aren't nazis right yeah uh less name calling but the name calling is what kind of what started some of this in the, in the, 
in the uh, less name calling is some of the foundation of of some of the uh anti bigotry and anti you know whatever so it's i don't know also i think we might uh, that being said i think we might need to thicken our skin a little bit too i think so a lot of a lot of people that have have gone against uh you know that viewed bullying as a huge huge problem Mm. 20 years ago are now saying kind of now it's swinging the other way and we're all getting a little too sensitive. So, (laughs) so we're going to have to thicken our skin a little bit too. And I think try to find balance, but I also have a uh, guest mention a uh, charity or foundation each week. I didn't prep you for this, but you already named one, the Richard Dawkins foundation. Richard Dawkins foundation is fantastic. They do great work. Uh, CFI, which is also a Dawkins organization is fantastic. And then the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education is by with Greg Lukanoff is fantastic. Those are three charities. Fantastic. Well, thank you, Peter, Thanks, for joining I, me. I, I very appreciate, much appreciate. I appreciate. This. I appreciate the levity that you brought into this too, because <laughs> uh, obviously I've been I've been thinking about this for a while, and yeah. I've been frustrated that more people don't understand the connection between how the far left is not only destroying our academic institutions, but how the far left is fueling the far right. I know. And they're, fu- they're fueling each other, too. I mean, They are absolutely. Now, now I just read that 55% of conservatives don't trust the academy to educate their children. And I'd say if yikes. they actually knew what's going on, it would be 100% of them. Right. Yeah. And with that, as I forgot to turn off my phone, that is, that's, that's going to be my little ending bell from now on. But uh, thank you very Thanks much. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate, awesome. it. I appreciate All right. it. Thank you, listeners, for being such wonderful, curious people. Twitter, at yeah. Peter Bogosian, P-E-T-E-R-B-O-G-H-O-S-S-I-A-N. Awesome. And check out his manual for creating atheists. What'd you guys think? Was it juicy? Was it controversial? Was it all things that you've already uh, thought about on your own? Is it something you're completely unaware of? Are you a person who's in academia and affected by this? I'm so curious to hear your many uh, responses. Make sure and go to the herewearepodcast.com website. Click on Ask a Scientist. Is it still called that? That's that's now a fun running... uh, Oh, let's see. Is it just... I think it just says contact. Uh, it just says contact <laughs> now. We're no longer asking a scientist. We're we're contacting me. Uh, so you can <laughs> you can click on contact, uh, enter your name and email. Um, and and I've been getting some um, some emails about the psilocybin retreat in May as well, May fifth through thirteenth. Remember, you can always go to mycomeditations.com and get better information there. But um, you you should have received an email back from me. If not, um, try again because I have been receiving e- emails. Maybe I missed it or forgot or something, or maybe there's something wrong with the emails. But uh, if you didn't hear back from me about that, make sure and write again because I definitely want you there if you're interested May 5th through 13th. going to be a wonderful, glorious time. Uh, send in your questions about what you thought about this Uh, this episode for an upcoming episode with a different guest uh, and more in-depth listen and um, 
next week now uh she got bumped, but is one of my uh, one of my uh, favorite episodes of the year. That's not that's hardly any episodes this year. Just a fantastic episode, um, in general, in the history of the Here We Are podcast. Wonderful, wonderful conversation with Catherine McLean. Tune in next week. Those of you that listen all the way to the end, and especially those that subscribe on Patreon, which I'm getting started again. Uh, you are, of course, my favorite. Sorry to stick that Patreon on. If you listen all the way to the end, don't worry. You're still my favorite, whether you're giving me Patreon money or not. I guess double favorite for Patreon? Uh, I don't know. I Monetizing things makes me incredibly uncomfortable. Um, but man needs to make a living, pay the bills. So I thank you for the support on there. And extra special thanks to those of you that have written i just i hadn't i hadn't checked my reviews on itunes in a while uh it's probably been like a month or two and i went on and i read through all the reviews that i hadn't read and ah warms the heart you can imagine you work really hard on the precious baby uh a little project of yours and and uh you know it starts picking up steam a little bit and you put your your blood, your sweat, and your tears into it, and then you get to see uh, that, that people really appreciate it, and that's what that does when I read those reviews, which uh, which are uh, free for you to give at any time. You can just you can just log right on to iTunes, write a review. It lets you do that free a uh, free of charge. It lets it lets you give me a warm fuzzy feeling free of charge. All it takes is a few minutes of your time. Um, so you can do that and then it bumps up the popularity of the podcast as well and the more of those that we have the more established the podcast is alright that's why those of you that listen all the way to the end you are in fact my favorite and I will talk with you next week
Let's say uh, Seinfeld was on an island yeah. and he was blowing Boris Karloff. What would it, what would that be like? <laughs> it might go something like this. Oh, Mr. Karloff, I loved you and Frankenstein, and I love giving you a blowjob. Why, Mr. Seinfeld, I'd love having you 